0: This episode of Nocturne is brought to you with support from StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps your dad, uncle, grandfather, and every father figure in your life share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's a fun new way to engage with them, especially if you can't be together in person. Every week, StoryWorth emails your dad a different story prompt, questions you've never thought to ask, like, What is your favorite story about your father? And what things are you proudest of in life? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your dad's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. My mom and I have found different ways to connect over the past year, since we live on opposite sides of the country and we weren't able to see each other. It felt important to me to let her know I was thinking about her and that I really appreciated her. StoryWorth was a great way to learn more about her, her life, and our family, I learned about great-grandparents I'd never met, and I got to picture my mom as a girl dancing in front of her grandmother's full-length mirror. She painted pictures of her past in a way I hadn't heard before. Give your dad the most meaningful gift this Father's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com nocturne. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com nocturne. Nocturne is also brought to you with support from listeners like you. The show is free, but it's not cheap to make. So please help us out by supporting us on Patreon, where you can give a small amount each month and get bonus episodes, regular updates from me about behind-the-scenes stuff, and more. That's patreon.com slash nocturnepodcast. You can also go to nocturnepodcast.org slash support for other ways to help out. Hey there. This episode contains adult language, And there are a fair amount of F-bombs. So if that bothers you or you're listening with young kids, consider yourself warned. You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Here in the U.S. and in many places around the world, we're emerging from a period of being mostly stationary, limited or no travel for work or leisure. If you're not there yet where you live, I hope it happens soon. For some of us, the lack of movement and the lack of wandering wasn't that much of a contrast to our normal lives. Others, though, feel an irresistible pull towards constant movement and the culture that engenders.
1: My name is Kim Arola. I'm 36 years old and I am in Vallejo, California. I'm a writer and a musician, and I'm a graduate student of creative writing at San Francisco State University, where I'm also teaching a creative writing 101 course. I grew up here in the Bay Area, but my mom is from Austria, and so I hold dual citizenship in Austria, and I was there um, many summers throughout my life, so I'd spend three months there, and then come back here and go to school. And so I always had in my mind that there are other places in the world that that this city that I live in isn't everything. And I wanted to explore them. I always have this sense of wanderlust.
0: Kim had a health scare when she was 19, and around the same time her grandfather died. Those two events had a profound effect on her.
1: Around that time, I just thought, fuck it. Like, if there's something I want to do in life or something that calls to me, and I don't even know why, There's just this urge like I need to go. I need to do this thing and a lot of that has had to do with traveling I kind of dipped into traveling slowly I took a road trip in my car and that turned into a nine months of traveling around the country and staying at different friends houses but eventually I ended up in Kansas City and I met these two train hoppers And as soon as I heard that you could do that, that you could actually get on a freight train and just go where it was going, I thought I have to do this. This is something I have to do in my life. They were staying at my neighbor's house and I started talking to them. And I, you know, they told a lot of stories and a lot of those stories seemed kind of like fables or fairy tales. They were just, it it was kind of this idealized Traveler lifestyle, but it did turn out to be very much like that. I mean, it was difficult, but it was also this way of living that felt real in a way that I couldn't find in society I remember looking at their clothing because one of them had pants that were patched. They were held together by patches they were leather patches and canvas patches sewn together with dental floss because floss is stronger than thread and I remember them walking in and also like I could smell them (laughs) like you can they smelled like you know humans who hadn't bathed like they smelled like dirt and sweat and I just I was like this is a different way of living. I knew I'm gonna do this someday before I die and I actually ended up Um, dating one of them there in Kansas City. He and his friend and their little adorable puppy moved into my apartment. It was winter, it was freezing cold. I would walk next door to the community college every day and they would go downtown and play music, busk for money. And then they'd come back home with some whiskey and we'd eat bologna sandwiches for dinner and we'd hang out and it made my apartment feel like home. I really connected with their culture and the way that they were experiencing life. I recognized something in what they were doing that I needed to be doing. It it just felt like this day-to-day life that I had with going to school and working, even though I loved going to school, I loved my classes, it, it's like there was something underneath the structure of things, of like regular normal life that I wasn't getting, and I saw that in them, right? It was just this irresistible draw toward this unknown, this experience that just seemed real in a way that I hadn't been able to encounter. You know, there are these things in life that you just feel called to, and you know that they're risky, but like if you don't do it, you know that you'll always wonder. So we'd hang out together and watch movies that we had rented from the blockbuster across town, And one of those movies was Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which they loved, that movie. And it's kind of about wanderers, you know, it has a lot of that culture in it that these two traveling kids I met embodied. You know, like my boyfriend played guitar and he would play like old country music. And I just have this image in my mind of being out there on the road and kind of going back to a former time, you know, like a a simpler time. Not being a part of this, this society where I was already trying so hard to carve out a place for myself and couldn't commit to anything. I mean, this was like my probably third or fourth community college in as many years because I kept doing a semester or two and then not being able to stay. And the first chance I would get, I'd move somewhere else or I would just drive around in my Volvo when I had the money. So I was already unable to be in one place. And when I met these guys, there was really this kind of idealized version of this old-timey culture.
0: Kim's boyfriend ultimately decided to hit the road again. She stayed behind.
1: I was afraid to kind of push myself into that culture. I didn't want to assert myself into something where I wasn't a part of it. I didn't want to presume that they would take me into that, even though I was dating the guy. So when he left, I had a really hard time emotionally, and I ended up calling him and saying, hey, did you leave because you wanted us to break up or did you just leave because you had to hit the road? And he said, yeah, no, I I really wanted to be with you. I just have to go. And I said, well, how would you feel about me joining you? And he said, get yourself a pack, get yourself a sleeping bag. Like, here's what you got to do. So I gave my notice of leaving my apartment and I used the last of my money in the bank to buy a ticket i think i hit the road with like a hundred dollars in my pocket and in the years following that would come to feel very fortunate like very rich you know so i had a hundred dollar bill and that was it
0: boyfriend met her at the airport and his parents drove them into town
1: and i kind of thought you know maybe they would take us to their house and we would I would rest for a few minutes or have some dinner and then they'd bring us somewhere pretty, like a park or something. I had this idealized version of myself with a, with a bindle, you know, and a bandana. Uh, and I had brand new gear, brand new backpack, um, but they picked us up and they took us to, technically it was a park, but it was a concrete park um, in a busy downtown area of Tempe, Arizona. And we sat around, and we immediately met some other traveling kids. And that's what, we were all in our 20s, but we all called each other kids. You know, it was very much like a Lost Boys, like, never grow up kind of experience. And that first night, I got a ticket for being in the park after hours. When the police came that first night, I was scared. I had not had a lot of run-ins with the police in my life. You know, I'd been pulled over for speeding, maybe, or gotten parking tickets, but you don't even really interact with anyone. So that was something that really solidified this, this feeling of like, well, now I've done it. Like I've jumped in to this culture. And so, yeah, I was scared of it. It was my first night there. We're hanging out with people I don't know. Um, I really just thought to myself like, okay, just listen and learn, just watch, and, you know, stay quiet and observe and open yourself to this. And so when I saw these cops approaching, you know, I just kind of looked at my boyfriend and was like, what, you know, what do we do now? And watched what he did. And he was pretty street smart. He, he was very calm. Like, he wouldn't drink a lot before we jumped on a freight train. You know, he had these certain rules about how to survive out there. And... So we saw the cops approaching, and we were just quiet, we were just waiting, and everybody kind of had this feeling of like, oh shit, here it goes again, but for me, this is brand new. I have no idea what's going to happen. And they came up and they said, hey, you're not supposed to be here after hours, and I had no idea that we were even doing anything illegal. I didn't know that this was officially a park, and I had not seen any signs about it being closed, so I had no clue why they were even approaching us if we were going to go to jail. Like, I had no idea what was about to happen here, so... After they left, of course, I was relieved and then had that ticket in my pocket and thought, oh shit, like, you know, they have my, they took our IDs, so they had my parents' home address. I'm like, I'm probably gonna get a ticket mailed there. I'm gonna have to explain to my dad, like, what's going on. And later on, everyone threw their tickets into a bonfire. So I decided to do it too, And, and I could feel my heart racing. Like, I, you know, I grew up as a straight A student, I never got in trouble. And I was thinking, like, do I just pocket mine and, you know, try not to be noticed not burning it? But I said, fuck it. Like, I'm I'm in I'm in this now. This is my culture now. And and I did it also. And that began eight years off and on of traveling around the country by freight train. (laughs) We met about three people in that park, but by the time that we moved on to find a spot to sleep, which was just off trail on like a jogging trail. It was kind of a, kind of a valley below a jogging trail. There was kind of a ditch with a bunch of trees and bushes. And by the time we found that we had left the kids that we initially met, it was just my boyfriend and I, and he scoped out a good spot. He was just like, this looks pretty secluded. And we went there, we saw some other kids there. And we, you know, when you walk up, you want to, like make some noise and, and greet them so they know you're not a threat. So we walked up and said, hey, like, you know, is there room for us here? Can we find a spot? And just meeting those other travelers right away, there was a weird kind of instant camaraderie that I had been seeking or had not really. It always felt to me in society that, you know, I wanted to hear people's life stories and I wanted to tell them mine. and. This is why, you know, I was also writing back then and I was pursuing the arts because I felt like those were a way of connecting with other humans in a deep way. I felt like we were all kind of playing this game in society and, and I wanted to get through that to something more real and being out on the road, you meet somebody and you have time to just sit there and where did you guys just come from? What were you doing before this? Oh, what's, you know, if they were in this city before you were, they will tell you, uh, here's a good place to busk, you know, watch out for this cop. You would share practical information and then you would share... It was like we were really happy to see each other even though we didn't know each other. They would immediately start telling stories about the last town they were in. And we also, everything was communal. I mean, if you met a group of other kids, you know, if they had made some money busking and you had made some money, we would throw it together and get a bottle of whiskey or, you know, get some food for the night or a pack of cigarettes and then inevitably we'd end up sitting around in a circle as if there was a fire, even though there usually wasn't a fire because of legal issues with that. But we'd end up sitting around in a circle and telling stories about our lives or about stories we'd heard about other people's lives. And you got people in a very real way, and I I fell in love with that. I just thought, this is it. Like, these values make sense to me.
0: Kim grew up in a middle-class house on a cul-de-sac where the neighbor kids would all play games in the evenings. Both of her parents had traveled a lot before they had kids. Once the kids came, her mom stayed home and her dad worked.
1: And so it was in some ways like very
0: sheltered and protected and um, magical as a childhood, you know. Kim's wanderlust wasn't about getting away from her family. And when she told her parents about her plans, they weren't totally surprised.
1: So they both... Had these experiences of traveling, so when I when I told my parents, my school semester had ended, my boyfriend had left the city. I was depressed because I missed him. So I remember calling my mom and saying, "Well, it looks like I'm gonna start hopping freight trains, mom." And uh, you know, she she's a worrier. (laughs) She definitely, you know, has anxiety over her children's safety. But both she and my dad and my sister. And the people who were really close to me, they all said, yeah, well, it sounds like you need to do that. Like, good luck, you know, fuck yeah. Like, keep in touch and we're excited for you. Be safe, please, you know? And it was the people that I didn't know as well who were like, oh, you're throwing your life away. They didn't understand my reasons for it. The first night in that park, I I learned a lot of things, right? I had to use the bathroom. So I walked across this busy, bustling street to the Starbucks, which is where my friends, my new friends had told me that you could go without being hassled. But immediately, even though I wasn't covered in dirt yet, you know, I felt that I was a part of this culture now because when I walked in that Starbucks, I felt like the normal patrons of Starbucks were looking at me weirdly. And I didn't, I couldn't afford to purchase anything. I was trying to make this $100 last. So I used the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I was wearing makeup still because I typically would wear like foundation and a little bit of eyeliner. And I thought, what's the point of this now? You know, all these people I had just met didn't wear makeup at all. And I thought, I'm not gonna have, you know, a sink regularly or a mirror. I didn't even bring a mirror. And I thought, Okay, like, I'm going out there now, I'm living like them. Like, I think these people are beautiful, and they're not adorned in the way that I'm used to being in society. So I'm part of it now. So I washed it off.
0: For Kim and her fellow travelers, the allure of the lifestyle was living outside the constraints of society and discarding the roles they felt had been forced upon them. That brought new layers of identity to grapple with.
1: So when I was traveling, I did think of myself as homeless. However, the word that we used was houseless, because we had a home, right? Like we were each other's home. The world was our home. The road was our home. Traveling in that way, like from the first day, I felt like I had found my home. But I definitely thought of myself as homeless or houseless because I was experiencing that life, right? Even though I was fortunate enough to be able to come back to my family if I wanted to, but like on a day-to-day basis, I still had to find food, I had to find a way to get my medication, I had to find a spot to sleep at night.
0: Whether homeless or houseless, being untethered to a place means a fair amount of time must be spent figuring out where to sleep.
1: It wasn't predictable whether we could find a place in the daytime or whether we'd have to search around at night. and. There were these little communities that you would find, you know, where you could, you know, it it would be getting dark, you would walk up to a spot and try to introduce yourself and see if if they were okay with that, you know. But there were other times, I mean, there were a lot of times where we try to squat in an abandoned building and there are already people there and, you know, you get your little area set up and you try to be cool with everybody else and then somebody there or a group of people there are just loud and drunk and just kind of volatile and you feel uncomfortable or you feel nervous like these people are being loud they're gonna get the cops called like it's called blowing up the spot they're gonna blow up the spot i would tell my boyfriend like i have a bad feeling about this we should go we'd find a spot maybe under a bridge or Um, I think one time we actually found a way into like somebody's backyard, which I kind of feel weird about because I could see how we could scare somebody, but it was a big yard and we were hidden under like a giant willow tree and there was nowhere else to sleep in the town and we didn't mess anything up. So by the end of the day, you're really just trying to find a safe place to sleep. When I think about nighttime back then, back in my traveling years, uh, there are a few things I think about. One of which is just basic need for sleep and safety. Whatever else is happening, you know, during the day, it was always in the back of my mind, and I think it was in our minds because we would talk about it. If we didn't have, in whatever town we were in, a, an idea of where we were going to sleep or a stable spot already picked out, if we didn't have a friend or a stranger who was offering their couch to us or a relatively safe corner of a park where we had been before, if we didn't have something already lined up, it was definitely in our minds, like, we would try to bus, we would play music, you know, we'd try to make some money and get some food and meet people. But in the back of your mind, it's like, where are we gonna go tonight? And it's hard for me to function um, when I'm sleep deprived.
0: Finding a place to sleep wasn't the only challenge. There were also a lot of factors that could interfere with getting good sleep.
1: And so, I learned then to to listen for noises that might be danger but also to just kind of once it felt safe to go right back to sleep and get what sleep you can, you know, because you weren't always going to be able to get enough. So there was definitely that aspect of nighttime of I just my body needs to rest. I've been walking with a 40 or 50 pound backpack all day around the town or I've been on a train, you know, sitting there like maybe wet from the rain or cold or like eating out of a can. Like, it's just, it's taxing on your body even if you're having fun and having a good time. Um, And then you you really want that rest and replenishment that comes with sleep, which you aren't always granted or you're, you're never sure if you're going to be granted.
0: Kim parted ways with the boyfriend who first introduced her to life on the road. But other traveling buddies were key going forward.
1: I didn't travel a lot alone. There were always other people, like whether it was a partner or a group of friends or one friend, which like, if you have your one traveling buddy, you call it your road dog. It's like, they're more than a friend. They're not the same as my blood family. That's the person that you go through things with as if they are your spouse or something, but it's not necessarily a committed romantic relationship. It's just your, your partner, your buddy, every day. So I would have road dogs, you know, and I'd have groups of people. It is important if you have a group of friends to stay together because shit happens. Like, there have been situations with, you know, people being, my friends being woken up because some creeper is walking up and trying to touch them or someone might be trying to steal your stuff. So the, the group mentality is really important. When you're looking for a sleeping spot, it depends on what environment you are already in. If you're in a city and the only way to make money is to stay downtown and busk, um, you're not going to want to walk like five miles every night out to some remote spot. Your best bet might be to find an abandoned building or an abandoned house, but that comes with a lot more risks than just sleeping outside. It's it's much less discreet. You have to figure out a way into it, and you know you don't know who the people around it are. Um, it's, it's just like you get in a little bit more trouble for that breaking and entering than you do for just sleeping behind a bush. It was really a joy to me when I started to realize that my thinking had evolved with this culture to where I could find our spots, right? Like it was a sense of pride where in the beginning, I would just look to like, more experienced travelers to say oh I I found a good spot but eventually I was able you know I would go off exploring and I would come back and say I found a great spot and everyone would get excited so like what you want is definitely you want to be discreet I mean even in terms of what you're carrying around like you don't want a bright orange sleeping bag because you'll be spotted so I had friends who had bright orange sleeping bags and would turn them inside out so they're more like ground colored you know it's camouflage you wanna Make sure that you're not like right under a street light or um, not anywhere too close to anyone's house because we didn't want to scare people, right? Like we weren't trying to be like assholes and, and assert our rebellion at night. Maybe there were other times where we were kind of like fuck society, like playing music really loud or whatever, but our intention was never to hurt people. And at nighttime, you're just worn down. You just really want a quiet, safe spot where you're not going to be fucked with. You're not going to wake up with a flashlight in your face because some neighbor called the cops on you, you know, and we were woken up by the cops quite often. It got to the point where it just became something that I was used to disrupting my sleep and I was no longer even so afraid when I would be woken up by the cops. I would just hear, you know, you're in a dream and then you just hear, hey, time to get up wake up you can't be here you can't be here and there's flashlights shining in your face and you just feel more like oh not this again it's like it becomes an annoyance rather than you know a fear over time i mean it's still terrifying but it's just happened so often that like you know in tempe it was several times a night sometimes and they would be on horses right we would be sleeping off trail and you hear the horse hooves you wake up to horse hooves And then there's flashlights in your face. And it's just, you just think in your mind like, God damn it, I just, I'm trying to sleep. I'm not bothering anybody. No one can even see me. Like somehow you guys found me. So where are we supposed to go? You wake us up and where do you want us to go? So when the cops told us to leave, we would try, we would get up and try to look like we were leaving. But then we think, you know, is it really worth it looking around in the dark with our flashlights, trying to find another spot, probably stumbling on some other people that are sleeping out here and waking them up and then having a potential confrontation? Or should we just act like we're leaving, wait till they're gone, go back, and risk being woken up again in a few hours and getting a ticket in the morning? I mean, that was really the easiest thing, you know? So we just wanted to go back to sleep. We were tired. (laughs) You would expect that You could never get any good sleep on the road in situations like that, right? But in some ways it was the best sleep of my life because it was so needed by the end of the day after every day looked different, right? Some days were just wonderfully magical, you know, meeting new people, like sharing music, sharing stories. There's other days where you get hassled by the cops six times, like your friend goes to jail. It's never stable, it's never predictable, and we're walking miles every day. So by the end of the day, if you can just find your sleeping spot, especially if it's with a group of people that the energy feels good, there's nobody being volatile or aggressive... And you, you have everything you need, like a couple snacks and a guitar and some dogs and some friends and sitting in a circle. If you can find that and then you have your sleeping bag and you know that if anything happens, there's a bunch of people around you and there's dogs who will bark and alert you to it. And you sleep with your knife in one pocket, you know, and your phone and your wallet in the inside pocket. And you sometimes I would sleep with my boots on, but mostly I would tie them together and then tie them to my backpack, and then use all of that as a pillow so that if anyone tried to steal my boots, I would wake up, you know? But once you have all of that set, then I feel like I can go to sleep. It's really, it's interesting because it's like a similar routine. It's just different particulars, right, of what I do now. Like, I in my house, I walk around, I make sure the porch light is on, I lock all the doors, and now I just think about things differently, and it's like this house is supposed to be this fortress of security, right? But it's so strange that I felt much more relaxed and able to just ease into sleep. Now, it's a different level of weariness. It's um, dealing with day-to-day life as a mom and as a student and as a teacher, you know, did I check these emails? Did I um, did I post this lesson plan? Did I pay this bill? Am I gonna have the money to pay this bill? So it's you go to sleep worrying about things like that rather than just like, Do we have everything? Everything's set up around us? All right, now we can sleep.
0: Back then, living day to day without schedules and responsibilities, Kim and her friends would come across people who delighted in their traveler lifestyle, identifying with the desire to go out on the road unburdened by the weight of conventional life.
1: And they'd be like, you guys are awesome, and I wish I could be doing this, and let me give you a lot of stuff and come stay at my house because this is so exciting that you're doing this.
0: But more often, that was not people's reaction.
1: It was either we hate you, get out, get the fuck out of our area, or complete indifference and, like, ignoring us and acting like we didn't exist and not wanting to address us at all. You know, regular people in society, like people that I would have been friends with maybe before this, just did not see me. They saw Dirty Traveling Kid, like, I don't know, like blight on society or just annoyance or something. Right. And after a while that gets, you really start to internalize that and you don't want to, because the whole reason you're doing this is to live in this more authentic way. And it wasn't even necessarily conscious thought. It was just like, I felt lesser than other people around me who were on their way to work or something, even though I didn't consciously value the things they valued. It just felt like I was apologizing for existing all the time. Just being seen as worthless, you know, you start to feel that way. And people ignoring you is also, it can be about as wearying over time as people hating you.
0: Despite Kim's love of the traveler lifestyle, the physical and emotional hardships of being on the road would sometimes build to a tipping point.
1: I would get burned out on the road.
0: When that happened, Kim would call her mom and go home and rest for a while. Sometimes her grandmother would help out with money for rent so she could go back to school.
1: I realized that that's—I had a privilege that a lot of my friends didn't have. On the one hand, I realized that I had the privilege of if things went badly, I could go to my family. And so did a lot of other people that I met. Like, a lot of my friends, like, if something was really bad, they, at least for a time— would be able to you know have a place where they could go and then a lot of people didn't the people that i met on the road were traveling for all different reasons and i was i was someone who chose to do that because i met people who were doing it and it appealed to me that lifestyle and that way of seeing the world and living in the world appealed to me but there were also people who had terrible family lives growing up there were people who were kicked out by their parents because they were queer there were people who just did not feel safe at home or had lost everything financially or maybe they had had an addiction problem and their family was not willing to help them. But, you know, sometimes we didn't even really know each other's stories in the beginning and we were all kind of in the same boat. So. I totally recognize that I was lucky to have my family to go back to, and some people didn't have that. But even though I had the privilege of being able, if I really desperately needed to, to come back to Vallejo, like, I didn't belong in Vallejo. I didn't feel at home in Vallejo. So another thing about when I was traveling, it was a lot of white kids, and I think that I was aware from the beginning that i had a lot of privileges that a lot of people around me didn't have and that is you know my privilege was my race i recognize that being on the road like this would have been much more terrifying if i weren't white and that's none of that is fair right and You know, I've been pulled off of a train at gunpoint. Like, I've been... I've had groups of police officers running up to me yelling, like, get the fuck out of here, right? But, like, if I weren't white, would I have survived that? You know? And that... That hits me really hard. And, you know, I have friends who are traveling and are not white, and they have a whole different experience that I can't even speak for, but I have to acknowledge that that's different and that, you know, I and probably safer than them when I'm out there on the road. I guess the last time I was on a freight train was probably 2012. And then that was the year that I also got pregnant. I never wanted to end up back in Vallejo, but I ended up back here um, because I had my son and I'm raising him here with the help of my family. And I went back to school. And there have been a lot of times here over the past eight years or so uh, during which i felt very isolated and displaced from my former culture and from friends of mine who are living in different places, from my home in Austria where I always really feel much more connected to that culture. You know, I loved my child. I appreciated my family um, and extended family who were helping me take care of him and supporting me when I went back to school and everything. But I did feel very trapped in Vallejo. And it's taken a long time for me to really kind of establish a home here. And I have a roommate who is my best friend
0: now, and I have, like, my family here. Kim stopped hitchhiking and hopping freight trains because she had her son. She still traveled around with him by car up until last year when the pandemic made even that impossible. But that life she had before, she may never have that again.
1: I think I'll always miss traveling in that way. Even though I love the life that I have now, there's always things that I miss about that kind of freedom, that kind of spontaneity and adventure and community and, and bonding with like your one traveling partner who's your road dog. You know, you wake up and You say, well, what are we gonna do today? How are we gonna make money? How are we gonna eat? Uh, Where would you like to go? I don't idealize it now. Like I don't pretend like there weren't hard things about it. And and I do appreciate having the safety and um, having a home now that I didn't have for that time or had given up for that time. But I think I'll always miss that feeling of just being in the present in a very real way you know, focusing on your immediate needs and focusing on the people around you without playing the game of a job and bills and, you know, rent and just how to fit into society and its structures. I I will always kind of miss having that time in my life where I was able to live without that for a while. So there are just things about traveling that I try to incorporate into this world here. And, And I think in general, it's a sense of it sounds, it sounds cliche, but live in the moment, put aside societal bullshit. Don't let yourself get sucked into that. Like you might have to deal with it. You might have to deal with bills and paying rent and worrying about the future sometimes, but like allow yourself that and then remember what's actually important, right? Play music, laugh, um, be communal, cook together. We're into allowing travelers to come stay here. I want my home to be the best of all the homes that I was allowed into when I was traveling. It's interesting to think about when I stopped traveling because that's such a vague boundary. It's not black and white, right? So traveling was a lifestyle that I still try my damnedest to retain, like the spirit of it. I think that same attitude of being open and seeing every day as a possibility for adventure and surprise. And even if that makes you uncomfortable, and even if you're not able to predict how it's going to go, I want that to be my world still, and the world that I raised my child in.
0: You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Other music in this episode is by Miles Boyson, David Hughes, and Kent Sparling. Thanks to StoryWorth for supporting Nocturne. Give your dad the most meaningful gift this Father's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash Nocturne. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash nocturne for $10 off. You can find more information about Kim, who goes by the name Naraya Rain for music and art, at our website in the show notes for this episode. That's at nocturnepodcast.org. While you're there, check out ways to support Nocturne if you don't already. The support tab is at the top of the page. Thank you so much if you contribute already. Till next time, thanks for listening.